Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker of yours. What up, monkeys? How's everybody doing? I hope you're staying safe and healthy and indoors. And as you are stuck inside, I thought I would bring out this special series of Snark Monkey podcast episodes because, you know, what else am I going to do? Uh, the point is, I thought I would talk to some previous Snark Monkey guests about their go-to movies, the movies that they're using in this quarantine time to just find some comfort and some joy and some distraction and some escapism. And boy, uh, I've got a great one to start off with today. My good buddy Peter Siegel, writer, director, TV guy, entrepreneur, raconteur, man about town. I've seen him half naked. We went to college together. That's why. Uh, Peter Siegel. And not only that, we talk a little bit about the fact that he's got a lot going on, even with not a lot going on. Uh, Let me explain. Uh, For one, Peter is in the process of celebrating his movie he directed, uh, the 25th anniversary of Tommy Boy, a movie that definitely is a go-to comfort movie for a lot of people right now, I would imagine. Not to mention, he can speak to being directly affected by COVID-19 from the standpoint of how it has shut down production in Hollywood. He was in the midst of actually working on a TV show, as well as had a major motion picture that would have been in theaters right now. Except nobody's in theaters right now, because this is the aftertimes. So uh, he's going to give us a little insight into how that's going to work. Very fascinating. But we do talk today about his go-to comfort movie that he just recently watched, 1978's Heaven Can Wait, starring Warren Beatty, who also uh, co-wrote and co-directed a delightful comedy fantasy from the late 70s with an amazing cast. It's just fun, frothy, light entertainment, the kind of movie we need right now. So let's talk about it and more with director Peter Siegel. Welcome to my walk-in closet recording studio. Oh, how nice. Oh, you're, you're, you're in your, uh, that's right, you're up north, you're in, and you need to have it all muffled so there's no echo, is that it? Uh, well, I, I basically am in a walk-in studio, which uh, I believe you can relate to the fact that uh, a lot of women in our lives have a lot of clothing, which acts as a natural <laughs> soundproofing. Uh, yes. 
Yes. Yes. I saw that one uh, video you posted when you did that. That was that was fun. Yeah. I I have a nice sliver over here for literally like a tenth of this room is my clothing, and <laughs> pretty much covers. Yep. It. Yep. I've got two daughters. How are you, Siegs? I'm okay. How, how are you, you? How are you guys hanging in? We're hanging. Um, we've got two of our children with us. The third <laughs> is in round three of quarantine because every she's got a bunch of roommates, uh, Nikki being one of them, and two of the other roommates are not so bright, and they keep getting re-exposed to people <sighs> coming home. And so it's literally been... This is, I'm approaching six weeks since I was called home from Atlanta where I was about to start shooting, and I haven't seen Taylor. I, I've seen her through the glass, like those Hallmark commercials. Are you kidding? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding. Uh, um, oh, boy. We, we got so much to talk about. I, we can't even get into that because we could just talk about that for yeah. an hour. Um, yeah. I, I do want to get to – there are several things, actually, that are all just kind of happening right now. And as we record this, I'm actually going to try and get this episode out. This is the very first episode. One of the reasons we had a few technical issues here at the top uh, was that I'm trying uh, this brand-new unit, um, which I wanted to actually play some of my wacky sound effects that it has on it, and you can't hear it right now. Um, but there's like a wah, wah, wah sound effect and applause and laughter, but you can't hear it because we're actually on the phone, even though I'm recording you, it's complicated. Um, but this is a series of go-to movies, those movies, uh, that we never thought we would need for a freaking pandemic to give us comfort and to help, uh, calm our anxiety a little bit. And, uh, you are my first test case of this special snark monkey episode, but also, I wanted to hit a couple of points that you just mentioned your uh, production on the TV show you've been working on in Atlanta. You have been kind of got, you got the double whammy yeah. uh, as you also had a major motion picture release that was first that, that well, for one, has been pushed back a couple of different times to a pretty sweet spot on the schedule and now is, I assume, question mark release date. <laughs> Um, well, actually, uh, to go back to the beginning, um, March 13th was a Friday. Friday the 13th was, uh, normally I kind of like Friday the 13th. It's, it's actually been good to me historically, but this one, not so much. Yeah. Uh, I was two weeks away from beginning principal photography on a show for stars in Lionsgate called Heels, which is a drama about the independent wrestling world in a small town in Georgia. And... Uh, we're in Atlanta, and at the time, Atlanta was not uh, uh, that bad. Um, you know, California and New York were in the lead of what was going wrong, and there even was uh, a little bit of that feeling of, don't worry, it's not going to hit Georgia. And, uh, of course, that was wrong. Um, <laughs> and within days, I mean, literally day by day, uh, the news changed. Literally daily, sometimes right. hourly. Uh, well, the other thing that was happening on Friday the 13th was the original, well, our movie My Spy for right. STX with Dave Bautista, action comedy, um, was moved a couple of times for various reasons I won't even go into, but we, we hit a date March 13th, which seemed pretty good, and then a week out, uh, we started hearing all the rumors about coronavirus and uh, the AMC theater chain started taking a 20% hit. And I got a call from the head of uh, uh, 
research at STX and um, Mulan had just come on tracking and was causing a bit of disruption and trying to figure out how many people were going to go to our movie versus how many to Mulan. And the, the head of research said, do not worry about Mulan. That's not your problem. The problem is this new virus run for the hills. And I said, well, what are we going to do? Well, within 48 hours, uh, we found out what they were going to do. James Bond had moved off of April 17th and right. we pushed we pushed one month to April 17th. Now, I thought at the time, well, this is not going to probably be enough of a push, but it was at least enough to give us some breathing room that we could step back and assess the situation uh, with some time under our belt. And of course, as we went on, it, it you know, we're, we are where we are now, which is uh, if we're going to follow Gavin Newsom's uh projection of no sports until 2021 how different is a movie theater from a sporting venue right i don't know so suddenly uh all of the streamers started calling stx wanting my spy and we just made last week a deal uh of a very good deal to go to amazon and they and they took it Oh, well, that was my next question. Was there was there a serious uh, consideration to actually making it available uh, as a direct-to-streaming option, which obviously now I think all major studios have to consider as opposed to having yes. this glut of movies just kind of sitting there. Correct. And Correct. Although with production halted for such a long time, uh, the glut might turn into a little bit of a drought at one point when there suddenly will be nothing to fill a gap where there's been no production going. But so it's a, a, a real quandary to be in about what do I do with, with, with this movie? And well, you're right. And the first sign of, is this a good move or is this a bad move came about, uh, four days ago when last weekend, the only other movie in the marketplace besides ours, which was intended to be released theatrically and then punted and went to streaming because of the virus, was Trolls World Tour. And set and a digital record this yes, week. <laughs> it set a digital record. It uh, beat Jurassic World by 10 times what its video on-demand debut numbers were. It's literally on par with the on-demand numbers from Avengers. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And, What's going on? And obviously, I mean, your movie is maybe perfect for this scenario from the standpoint that it's it's not necessarily a big screen spectacle movie, even though it looks like it's got some great action sequences in it. But it is, I would assume, somewhat family oriented and yes. that it's an action comedy, which is a great combination. I mean, right now, it seems like it would be a a fantastic choice to have available as people are looking for content and sharing stuff and cooped up in a house and looking yeah. for fun entertainment. So it, it, it would be very ironic for this whole scenario to actually benefit the release of your movie in this way. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. So, um, that, that was a good sign. That was a good sign. Uh, obviously trolls is a sequel. There's a different kind of awareness, but, um, we had already come out in Australia uh, in January and, um, and and did very well. So we, we have a little bit of a test market that, you know, um, that we think that, you know, we might be able to really uh, give families something and, you know, benefit from it ourselves. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, I, I know that you can't possibly 
predict this, but I'm sure you have an opinion on it. And, and I know you don't, I mean, I know I've known you a long time, so I know you don't really know anything, but, um, <laughs> well, you mean that in a good way? <laughs> I, yeah, no, I mean, you know that I don't know anything either. I mean, neither one of us really know anything, but we always have an opinion on something. And how much of an impact is this going to have on the future of how movies are going to be released? I mean, is this that kind of watershed moment where the studios go, it might be time to think about bypassing or maybe simultaneously releasing uh, motion pictures on streaming and in theaters on a more regular basis? Do you think that's good? they're going to look back at this and go, this is the time to start doing it? You know, because of the fact that things are changing daily um, and uh, maybe not with as much energy as they were in the beginning of the virus, which was it was hourly, but definitely it's weekly. I don't think there anyone has the answer yeah. right now because we don't know when uh, we're going to be going back into the theaters. And I use the analogy, as you know, I love to use analogies. Hmm. Uh, okay, so I'm going to write this down. Here's analogy number one in this entire conversation. Let's see if he yes. breaks his record, people. He is an well, athlete, so he likes to break records. Roy Scheider in Jaws telling everyone it's safe to go back in the water. Are you going to be the first person or are you going to wait a little bit? Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because actually one of the popular memes lately has been the uh, – the council, um, the economic council that Trump put together, and people have been using the meme of the Amity City, Amity. Ca- the Amity City yeah. Council voting on whether to open the beaches or not. Yeah. Oh well, well, Trump is the mayor of yep. Amityville. Yep. You know those beaches are going to be open on July Fourth. You know, and uh, you none, know none of these people are going in the water, Sheriff. <laughs> Get your family out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and the other thing I, I wanted to mention, and this I noticed this just kind of popped up. For one, you have uh, a big anniversary that you just passed that you may not have been able to celebrate in quite the way you were hoping to, um, and that is uh, the release of Tommy Boy. And yeah. um, you did get some press coverage on that because um, I have a feeling that that is a movie that a lot of people have been um, – I guess being nostalgic about, I would I would anticipate that's probably gotten a lot of play in homes right now as a as one of those comfort movies to just you know remember a, a simpler time and <laughs> more yeah. innocent time. But you also just passed an anniversary, and you guys are going to be doing something special. I'm going to have this out the day we record it, hopefully later on this afternoon. So to, that would be tomorrow. If you're listening to this on release day, you guys are doing a big live watch party. Yeah, um, Paramount called me and uh i've actually <laughs> i think i've done more press for the 25th anniversary of tommy boy in the last couple of weeks than i i did for my spy um it's like you know it's, it's been incredible the amount of people that still care and want to talk about it uh and oh on the contrary p i mean haven't you discovered now you and i if, i mean we're both movie nerds and we have been for a long time and if you ask us what our favorite movies are we're going to have an answer and it might be a classic or it might be something that really had an impact on us when we were growing when we were growing up but i am hearing people now say tommy boy is their favorite all-time movie and you know it has become part of a generation of a certain group who has 
seen it and embraced it, and it made a huge impact on them. I've heard that more than a few times from people that it's their favorite all time movie, and that's got to blow you away. Oh, yeah, it it does, it does. And uh, so anyway, tomorrow night is their Paramount. They're they're doing a thing which is kind of like a Zoom for everyone who wants to. Uh, watch the movie and ask questions and we may stop it and start it a couple of times. I've never done this before, but it looks kind of fun. We did a test run yesterday and thank God my son was there to be my tech advisor. Yeah. As you know, <laughs> I was just going to ask if you, if you had a millennial around to help you oh my God, get yes. things going, grandpa. Oh my God. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but then, uh, you know, unfortunately something that's coincided with the 25th is the passing yesterday of Brian Dennehy. I know. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to do this to kind of honor uh, Brian's memory, a big Tom Callahan. And, can you uh, uh, can you give us a, uh, I mean, you and I, Brian Dennehy is one of those actors that you and I must have seen in so many things growing up. And more than just a character actor, he was this really prolific. I mean, he he won, I think, two Tonys on mm-hmm. on Broadway. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, a really brilliant guy, but could kind of play anything. And I got to imagine the guy's just larger than life when you're working with him. Yes. He, um, I didn't realize uh, this until I read it in his obit that he was an offensive tackle in college. Uh, he's a big guy. Yeah. And, big um, barrel chested fella. And one of the reasons that he wanted to do Tommy Boy was. He had just seen uh, Chris in the Chippendale sketch, <laughs> and he was so blown away by the bravery of a fellow big guy that he was just fascinated by his confidence. And um, I remember the time that I, I drove Chris to the Palm Restaurant in um, West Hollywood to meet Brian and talk him into doing it. And... Uh, you have to remember that at the time, uh, back in 94, Saturday Night Live might have had its biggest, most famous cast with uh, Mike Myers and Sandler and Spade and Farley and Chris Rock, and yet the ratings were in the tank. Right. Um, and the fact that combined with the fact that until this that point, there had never been an SNL movie not based on SNL characters like Wayne's World or Coneheads, whatever. This was the the first original SNL uh, movie that was produced by Lauren Michaels that was not based on characters. And at the time, Billy Madison was also being shot, but it was not a Lauren Michaels production. So everyone had sort of looked at this, you know, and raised their nose at us thinking that, well, this is destined to fail. And so Chris looked at me in the car on the, on the way to see Brian. And he said, you know, Pete, everyone expects us to fail. The only victory is going to be a success. And I thought, okay, it was kind of a nice band of brothers moment. Sounds kind of corny, but it really did set the tone for how we had to dig our way out of this, you know, this, uh, these expectations. Well, it also in the stories you've told me and also in, in the past, you've told in other places too, is, that it's kind of remarkable that the movie became what it became because it it sounds to me like you guys were flying by the seat of your pants the whole time. It wasn't a very big budget. You were um, you didn't it's it didn't sound like that whatever script you had didn't end up being what you were sh- what you were shooting. And it honestly sounds to me like that you and Spade and Farley in particular just had the trust enough with each other 
to go, we're just going to go for it and try and make this all work together. And the fact that it coalesced in that way, I mean, it sounds to me when you've talked to me about this in the past, at the time, in the moment, you didn't know how it was going to hang together. I didn't know how it was going to end. I didn't have the second half of the script. (laughs) Um, We started with 66 pages because uh, Lauren had sold an idea to Sherry Lansing, the head of Paramount at the time, of Step Brothers. It was really more a story about Farley's character and Rob Lowe's character. And I had a different idea. Um, I wanted it to be about Spade and Farley's characters, two guys who didn't get along who have to work together to save the factory and save the town. And that consternation and creative butting of heads caused us to, you know, have a birthing process that was quite labored and difficult. And it dragged us out of the hiatus period where we were supposed to shoot the movie in between SNL seasons. And we were now simultaneously shooting with SNL. And so it was exhausting, but it was the reason we were able to make the movie because the guys would shoot with me in Toronto on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Wednesday night, fly to New York, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, do SNL. And, you know, SNL goes into the wee hours of Sunday, get back on a plane, come back, and we continue to shoot. But Thursday, Friday, Saturday allowed me and Fred Wolf to write. And it felt like a newsroom. It was like broadcast news. You know, you rip the paper out of the printer and it's like, copy, and send it down to the set. And um, I felt honestly like I was laying out the train tracks in front of the locomotive. I did not know, uh, you know, how this whole scenario was going to end. And I thought it was going to be a disaster as a result because I said, this is absolute insanity. Wow. Um, remarkable. So anybody who has that kind of affection for that movie and you want to pay tribute to Mr. Farley and, uh, the late Mr. Dennehy, who we just lost, um, that watch party should be just such a joyous celebration of such a fun movie. And if you're listening to this on either Friday or Saturday, the 17th or 18th, it is on Saturday, 5 PM Pacific, 8 PM Eastern. And where do they go, Pete? Do you uh, can you have a millennial tell us where they go? Yeah, it's a, a, a site called CYA, um, and if they are, uh, if, if they could also follow me because I just posted a link to the site. Great, and they'll have all the instructions there. Fun! I will be there. I will have embarrassing cool. questions to ask. <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Uh, let's get to our comfort movie. This is our go-to movie. When I pitched this idea to you a few days ago, you um, you had a, a couple of different ones. I get the impression, Pete, as you as you and the family have been uh, sheltering at home and hunkering down during this, that you have gone to a couple of comfort movies <laughs> in this period. Yeah. And well, I mean, I think it's a natural thing to do is just to go to that that place of, oh, I have such joy in remembering watching this, the experience of it, and also it's just it's just a pleasure to watch a great movie sometimes like that, that you're so yes. familiar with. Well, I consider the, the comfort movies are the movies that if you are flipping the channels and you come across it 20 minutes in, you'll still yep. watch it. Yep, and, and I have the same because it's not necessarily your favorite movie all time. But you no. picked you picked Heaven Can Wait, the 1978 Warren Beatty film, uh, the first film he directed, co-directed with Buck Henry. Uh, with it, it's a remake of 
Uh, Here comes Mr. Jordan. Yeah, from 1941, which, by the way, I don't think that's that great a movie. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's re- not. It's really not. I mean, it might have been a hit at the time, but I think that what Beatty did with the premise, he improved on. It's also been made, apparently, many other times. Your friend Chris Rock uh, did a version right. of it called Down, Down to Earth, Earth which, yeah. uh, again, um, nothing against Chris, but it didn't exactly light the world on fire. And the premise has been used many times. I even discovered today in my research that there was a porn version <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, called Debbie Does Dallas Again, which used oh, really? the exact same premise. So now you've got another wow. comfort movie of a different sort. You might want to go look up. Uh, oh, wow. It garnered several. I mean, it's funny to me, Pete, because you and I both have such an affection for this. My wife, Sharla, loves this movie and, and mostly for Charles Grodin, who is somebody mm-hmm. that right. um, for a period of time was the go-to just snarky cynical side character with the occasional lead role if you had to sit through the beethoven movies in the 90s um i think at the time it got so much attention i don't hear many people talk about this movie anymore and i'm not sure why well it's interesting i it, it was a close call between this movie and and by the way the reason why i i chose this one it was on just a few days ago, yeah. and, it, and it reminded me how much I love this movie. And my son is now a huge LA Ram fan, and <laughs> I was, you know, an original LA yep. Ram fan when we were here in the first go round. And that's another reason why I—it's it's just such a, a fantasy, um, you know, thinking that you can, you know, inhabit someone's body, buy a team because you're a billionaire, and suddenly you're quarterbacking in the Super Bowl. It's just such an escapist, crazy idea, and yet they make it work. Yeah, um, it's a really beautifully delicate movie. I mean, it's very funny, and it's got some broad moments, but it is, in many ways, a throwback to the kind of movies they were making in the 40s with some slightly you know, ramped-up adult sensibilities. But it's still... Mm-hmm. I think the thing that maybe it appealed to me when I first saw it was that it did have the feel of an old-fashioned, you know, fantasy comedy movie with all these really contemporary, beautiful people in many cases. Mm -hmm. Because we should Mm -hmm. talk about the cast a little bit. Well, we can talk about the movie as a whole, but let me me go back to, do you remember what your history is with, with this movie? Like when you first saw it, did you see it in theaters when it came out? Oh, yes. Yes, I saw it with my dad. And my dad took me to the Coliseum to watch, you know, back in the days of Roman Gabriel and Cullen Bryant, Jim Bertelson. I can go on. I have, you know, Fred Dreyer's autograph, Joe Chabelli. I When I got out of college, and you know this because you and I were roommates in college at USC, um, I went to work at uh, Channel 2 in, in um, uh, CBS in Los Angeles. And I was a PA on the John Robinson show. And right. I got to travel with the Rams. And one time I traveled to Tampa Bay with them. I was on the team plane and I had Jackie Slater look at me because I, apparently I was accidentally sitting in his seat. And he just shook his head. Uh-uh. And I went, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> and got up out of there quick. But the coolest, the coolest uh, thing was uh, – Eric Dickerson had a break one of his many breakaway touchdowns came into the end zone right at me. You know, we're in Tampa Bay. They weren't a very good team at this time, the Bucks. 
And um, I, I'm patting Eric Dickerson on the back as he turns around, gives me the ball, goes back, you know, <laughs> and uh, it made it made the highlights, you know, the sports highlights um, that shot. But the coolest moment was right after that. We got on the team bus to go back to the hotel. I'm sitting way in the back. I did not want to sit in Jackie Slater's seat again. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jack Youngblood, that was the game that, that he played with a broken leg. Oh, yeah. A fractured oh, wow. leg. And Jack Youngblood was like John Wayne. He got on the bus, came back, and sat next to me. His arms were all bloody from the game, and he lights up a cigarette as the bus <laughs> takes off. I'm like, damn, <laughs> that is so cool. Um, so anyway, in light of all that, of course, I was first in line to go see this movie. So it was know. the Rams connection that was the first draw for you. It, it, it was the sports side of it. It was a little bit the sports side. I, it was such an, a cool premise, though, for a movie. It, yeah. it had me. And I still marveled at it recently, a couple days ago, I think, thinking this is really a complicated idea, especially the ending is frustrating to me. It, it's, um, it's like trying to think of infinity. You say, wait a minute. So m- my whole destiny is to become you with no knowledge that I was ever me. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> How will I ever know that? So let's t- uh, let me go over the premise real quick. It's uh, Warren Beatty plays Joe Pendleton, a backup quarterback for the Rams, um, and he, through a series of events, after talking to one of the assistant coaches, played by the great and good Jack Warden. Yes. Um, who talk about character actors? Yeah. Maybe there probably is not a year throughout the 70s or 80s where Jack Warden isn't in virtually every other movie yep. that's being released. And by the and way, nails it in every single one. I mean, just yep. the most solid character actor. And he's so good in this. Um, uh, so Joe, the quarterback, um, gets caught in a in a tunnel as he's riding his bike, <laughs> I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, and, and gets, and gets uh, flattened like a pancake. Uh, hit by a car, yeah. Right. Uh, taken so off, we think. Taken off to heaven, and when he gets there, they realize that there was some sort of accounting snafu, <laughs> and he was, he was yanked out of his body a little too early, and too late because Joe's body has been cremated. And so the best, the next best option is to drop him into the body of this multimillionaire, um, Mr. Well, first they went on, first they went on a scavenger hunt to find right. uh, an, right. an appropriate body. And, <laughs> that, and that's a great they, sequence. That's a great and because, sequence. Because they blew it because Buck Henry, who is his guardian angel, and he's just sort of trying to get his wings and he was new on the job and yanked him too soon. Um, he felt an obligation to do whatever Joe wanted and find a body that he could get in shape to be a, a professional football player again. Right. So it was a funny montage of you know trial and error with people about to be murdered and about to die, and you know finally he comes across Leo Farnsworth, this billionaire that everyone hates, um, and he's but, just been drugged in yeah. his bathtub by his cheating wife, played by the great Diane Cannon, mm-hmm. and her lover, uh, Farnsworth personal secretary, uh, Tony, played by Charles Grodin, who I miss terribly. 
seeing yeah. him in anything. Um, they have been scheming to do this, and which which causes a, a great scene later on when Leo reappears. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, he's uh, so Joe is dropped into Farnsworth's body just before the time of death, and then there's this you know as you would expect this whole sequence of rules that we have to establish, which is, you know, you see you as yourself. Everybody else will see you as Farnsworth. Joe is still trying to wrap his head around this, doesn't believe it. His his dresser, his butler is, you know, calling to him after his bath to get his clothes on. And I mean, just all those you have to you have to build the world real quick to let everybody know what the rules are, knowing that, yes, you are going to you're not going to be some seeing some fat slob millionaire. You're going to be seeing pretty Warren Beatty for the rest of the movie. It's okay, (laughs) But everybody else will be seeing somebody else. And but he's only temporarily inhabiting this body until they can find a more appropriate physical specimen who really could take them to the Super Bowl. So we kind of forget that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. and the whole second act goes, and most of the third act, and just as uh, Joe really turns what was uh, Leo Farnsworth's whole life and how he operated uh, upside down and makes him a better person, and everyone starts to love this guy because he's now a salt-of-the-earth, grounded character, the egg timer dings, it's time's up, we found you another body, and yeah. now Warren Beatty's saying, no, 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 this is great. I think I can make this work with this guy. I said, well, that's the deal we made. So now we're going to have, this is your destiny, Joe. Yeah. By the way, it's taken us 15 minutes to describe this plot. It's complicated. <laughs> it is, because a, a, a big middle part of the movie is Joe, as Leo Farnsworth, deciding, well, if I'm stuck in this body, I'm going to make this body train to <laughs> to play in the Super Bowl. He and And what's great about the way Beatty plays this is that I mean, he's 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 not a brilliant guy. So he's he's kind of working with the passion that he feels. He's like, no, I can I can turn Farnsworth's body into a you know a, a better physical specimen, and I can you know I I can, I, but but I also want to be a better person. It turns out as he yeah. learns, like you said, he he learns that Farnsworth was just a a dick, and yeah. and he's driven a little bit by the romantic discovery of a just luminous Julie Christie. I I yeah. I don't know how they litter and uh, and how much vaseline they put on the lens for her shots, but wow, she is just yeah. glowing in this thing. Yeah. And yeah. obviously they have a history and you know um so you could really kind of feel some some really good chemistry there. I mean the cast Well, well she she was uh, her her story is that for those who don't know the movie is that she was um, protesting uh, Leo Farnsworth trying to uh, drill for oil in her town of Pagelsham in, I think it was Scotland. And um, right. she she goes from, you know, protesting and, and wanting to throw herself on the railroad tracks before he's able to do any drilling to falling in love with him when he transforms into Joe Pendleton. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, a, a lovely turn, yeah. lovely arc. And then so when we get to the final kind of turnaround of the movie, um, this is where and this is where your brain starts to really hurt. And also yes, your yes, heart and your exactly. and your heart hurts a little yes. bit, too, because you're a sensitive fellow, Pete. <laughs> um, well, my heart hurts mostly for Jack Warden because it takes so long for <laughs> Warren Beatty to convince him that he's still Joe Pendleton, even though he looks like someone else, Leo Farnsworth. 
And after all that careful uh, uh, persuasion, he has to undo it all because he's not destined to be in Leo Farnsworth's body. He's destined to be in some other guy's body. And, and that look in the locker room just breaks my heart. And I yeah. forgot about it when he's staring at the, the alto saxophone, which was what Joe tried to play and was miserable at it, but it was endearing. Um, and he realized that more so than me as an audience member, because I'm going, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) He's changing again. And, but he got it. He got it. He knew that his friend was finally gone forever. And that is really what was so sad for me. Yeah. So when we get there, it's, um, Farnsworth, uh, uh, Joe as Farnsworth, he knows he's going to have to leave Farnsworth body. And, and the great, turn here is that his shrewish wife diane cannon's character and the personal secretary charles groden's character they are actually successful and that's the thing that actually kills farnsworth and and that is a a kind of brilliant shot it's it's basically i if i remember correctly is charles groden take with a rifle like shooting him from a distance yes and it just and it just flips him over into a well out in the yard and that's when farnsworth dies but and 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 this is the kind of i don't know if you call it coincidence but the plot device that could only happen in a movie like this of course who should joe get to drop his body in his soul into but the starting quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams, Tom Jarrett, right, who gets hit so hard on the field that it kills him. Yes. <laughs> it is it is a brutal hit, the likes of which, well, well before they had improved the padding and the helmets, I would assume, uh, because this is 1978. So. Um, Clearly, it was a it was a brutal hit. They drop Joe's body into Tom. Tom gets up, leads the Rams to a Super Bowl victory, something that we haven't got to experience for real in quite some time. <laughs> but can I can I can I just say this? When I was a junior at Chaparral High in Scottsdale, Arizona, I was the editor in chief of my newspaper. Uh, this was after my parents divorced, and so I you know spent most of my youth in L.A. I, I was in Phoenix, but I got to cover Super Bowl ele- uh, fourteen, and it was th- that year. I think seventy eight or seventy nine. I think it was and the it, next year they the actually, year. yeah. And it was the Rams versus the Steelers, which was the teams playing in this movie. So this was to me art imitating life and actually being prophetic. It was yeah. like they were predicting the future one year from now. That's why it blew me away. Um, you know, as a sports fan and a movie lover, I'm like, I got two in one. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is that, uh, you know, so cut to decades later, I get to direct, you know, a remake of Robert Aldridge's great movie, uh, The Longest, Longest Yard. Yard. And I s- went back and studied uh, all of the football movies that I'd grown up with, especially Heaven Can Wait, because I saw how. And, and I remember the, the L.A. Times writing about it, that Warren Beatty, like De Niro training to be a boxer for Raging Bull, he got pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And they, they, you saw him throw the ball from his hand all the way to, and again, I was you know uh, enamored with the cameos in the movie, Harold Jackson, who was a wide receiver for the Rams at the time. And, and he's throwing 40, 50-yard bombs. 
And so I said, well, I've got to do the same thing in the longest yard. I've got to design shots where I show people that that's Adam Sandler doing that. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. I learned I learned from that movie. Well, it's it, actually, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you because you have I've known you long enough to know that sports movies are, I mean, obviously, they touch something in us that is just there's an innate just feeling of exuberance when sports movies work and they click. But the interesting thing about the, I mean, Heaven Can Wait is not essentially a sports movie, not say the way Hoosiers is or, you know, um, or yeah, We Are Marshall. It's um, The Natural, which is another movie, which is almost the one we did uh, today, um, is surrounded by baseball and maybe more of a sports movie, but not even that much of a sports movie as I mean. So I think the interesting thing here is that you're, you're, you gravitate to these movies that have sports as a backdrop, but the character studies, the character stories are the more interesting part of it. And that the fact that there is this layer of sports added onto it just kind of enhances the feeling of it. That's my sense of the stuff that you respond to. Well, Nina Jacobson, who was one of the former heads of uh, Disney, uh, I met with her about a project uh, many years ago, and she came up with a term that I've been using ever since, that sports movies are chick flicks for guys. <laughs> yes. They, they, they pull on your emotions. Yeah. And, um, and those are the kinds of things that if you want to you know, cleanse yourself and etch-a-sketch erase watching an hour and a half of CNN or MSNBC or Fox, whatever your news channel is, and, and kind of just lose yourself and try to kind of forget where you are, and this is the whole premise of, of us talking today, those are the kinds of movies that transport you. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there are many that do, but you know, I would say for me the, the quickest way to lose myself is in uh, a, either a sports movie or a mob movie. For some reason, those are, and then I put Nazis third. You know, there's something about them. You know, uh, if, if you want the quick etch a sketch a race, yeah, that's my go to. I'm assuming you mean ones where the Nazis, you know, get what they deserve, as opposed oh, to well, I, as opposed to I, triumph of the will or something. You're not watching no, no, Nazi no. propaganda. I want to no, make that I'm clear. Not, <laughs> I'm not uh, Lenny Reifenstahling this. I'm saying. <laughs> It's more like uh, Inglorious Bastards. I now put up there as one of my great comfort food oh, movies. That is also one of those that if it's on, I don't care where it is in the movie. Yeah. I I usually end up watching it to the end. Yeah. I can't stop. It yep. it it's definitely my favorite Tarantino movie. I think even slightly ahead of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, although that's a close second. Yeah. But um, it's literally my new Godfather. It's just it's so like, it's so cathartic. I mean, it's just. Uh, and I get that. I get what you're saying. So tell me, in watching Heaven Can Wait again, and I, there's probably no telling how many times this would be to see this movie. I would suspect you've seen it multiple times over the years. Yeah. Um, how do you feel it holds up? Outside of the obvious dated aspects of it being from 78 and, and right. technology and that sort of thing. But in terms of um, just as as a piece of film to sit down with, with even with young people who might watch it now, how do you feel like it, it's held up over the years? Well, what you can't ever um, underestimate is good uh, acting and good writing. And the cast in this is 
spectacular. They're, they're all note perfect, really. They're, they're absolutely spectacular. And so it's such a well-oiled machine that holds up 100%. There are, there are no like crazy over-the-top performances that you look at and you say, oh my God, can you believe back in the day that we accepted that kind of performance as state-of-the-art? No. The writing, I think, is incredibly uh, well done. By the way, you know, it was nominated, this movie, for nine Academy Awards. Right. In, including Best Screen. Including, yes. And uh, again, uh, another, you know, uh, six degrees of separation, uh, I got to work with Buck Henry on Get Smart, who was one of the creators of Get Smart with, with uh, Mel Brooks, and he was the co-writer and co-director with Warren Beatty, right. who then went on to direct and uh, did he win for Reds or he was at least nominated? Oh, he was uh, nominated. Yeah. And and he sort of began, in my opinion, uh, this this wonderful streak of leading men who turned to auteurs. And, you know, you, you look at Mel Gibson, you look at Clint Eastwood. They weren't directing. You know, Clint was not directing uh, at this stage of his career, but right. Warren... Warren turned it around. And then, oh, by the way, and can't forget Kevin Costner, who won a couple of Oscars for Dances with Wolves. Right. And, and, and again, Orson Welles. I could go on. But but it was really, besides Orson Welles, it, for me, was really Warren Beatty who sort of led this charge in this new version of Hollywood. And it was so, again, there, there were a lot of, the odds were against him because he was the pretty boy. Yeah. And everyone thought, oh, this, and this is, a strange combination, the pretty boy and the, the funny guy, you know, um, uh, from get smart and, and the graduate teaming up. That doesn't make it. That makes about as much sense as Adam Sandler acting with Jack Nicholson in the movie. That'll never happen. Um, but it was a perfect choice because it was that combination that actually made sense. I mean, oh, he, they complemented each other beautifully. He knew that Buck was going to bring a kind of a sophistication to the writing, and yes, and 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 obviously Warren. I mean, this was you're right, Warren. This kind of started. He he hasn't directed a ton of movies, and there were big no. stretches in between them. But the very yeah. next thing Warren Beatty did was Reds. And if you think about yeah. the leap from this kind of light, frothy, old fashioned remake comedy that got a huge positive response and the follow-up to that and he didn't even make anything in between those movies the next thing no. he does is this big epic story about about john reed who was a, a journalist and communist activist and that that made the kind of impact it did and and honestly if you kind of pull back and look at warren Beatty's directing career um they he basically just kind of picked genre m movies to oh, yeah. kind of tackle because then the one after Reds that he directed was Dick was, Tracy. Right, yeah. And <laughs> and then uh, I don't think he directed anything uh, after that until until Bullworth, which yeah. it was a more of a kind of biting political satire. So, yeah. I mean, that's a really kind of bold set of choices if you're going to direct a movie to – to literally swing away from the genre to something completely different. And that, that says a lot about kind of where his head was at and the power he had in Hollywood at the time. And also he was able to deliver because those are, those are pretty, I mean, Dick Tracy, eh, I mean, swing and a miss maybe Warren, sorry. But, um, but it was a boy, it was a big swing. I mean, just, it, yeah, it, had it was a, a huge swing. And I think it, it, uh, changed 
Jeffrey Katzenberg's career at that point. I yeah. think, you know, it, it was an earthquake, yeah. you know, it was kind of like how Kevin Costner, you know, followed up uh, Dances with Wolves with Waterworld. You know, right. <laughs> um, or, or, or was the postman before that? I, I think I uh, I think the postman came after. Um, OK. Yeah. Well, both, by the way. Yeah. Sim- similar fate for both of them. You yeah, know, indeed. sometimes it's sometimes it's lightning in a bottle. You uh, know? Let's talk about the uh, remarkable career of Jack Warden real quick, though, because we mention him as the um, the assistant coach that is a good friend of Joe's in the movie Heaven Can Wait. And I, I'm not kidding when I talk about. How every, like, maybe year through the latter part of the 70s and well into the 80s, you couldn't see a movie where Jack Warden wasn't there. I mean, he made he made Heaven Can Wait in 1978. He had just been part of, uh, he had worked with Warren on Shampoo in 75. He was in All the President's Men in 76. Oh, and amazing in that. Also in 78, in addition to Heaven Can Wait, he was in Death on the Nile. He was in The Champ the following year. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and Justice for All as the crazy judge with the guns uh, <laughs> and in 79. Being there in, seven, in 79, he was in The Champ, Dreamer, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and Justice for All and being there. Yeah. And by the way, being there could very well have been on my list to discuss. Today Absolutely. It's one of my one of my favorites. So there is a guy that if you're not familiar with Jack Warden's career, you probably are and you just don't know it. And that period in his life, as a, and I and I bring up Jack Warden just because he could have been your kind of stock character actor, but as kind of a much of a personality as he was, and that kind of voice and that kind of gruff persona, there was a subtlety to what he did too. Like you talk about that last scene in Heaven Can Wait, which is really kind of heartbreaking because the love story comes together in in a way that feels like there's promise and Julie Christie's character recognizes something in this quarterback, Tom Jarrett, that she feels somehow some connection to him. And that's something that Joe had said to her that down the line, maybe there was a chance they would find each other, even though they didn't know it, but it's Jack Warden in that moment who has to deal with the fact that Joe is actually gone. And the, and what he does with so little, just with facial, with just body movement, is absolutely heartbreaking. And so you, you got to sing these guys' praises, these these journeyman 100%, actors, right? 100%. And I have to say, only because I'm in the business, and sometimes, you know, when you, you watch the magic trick too many times, you start to go, oh, I think I know how they did it. Um, there's a key piece of ADR that they used to because I'm sure they had a test screening where they said our audience is a little bit lost <laughs> at this ending. <laughs> They're not sure what's going on. And so when Warren Beatty knows uh, he, he has to give up the body he's in and start over, he's saying goodbye to Julie Christie at the car and he says, will you marry me? And she says, of course. And then he says, if you ever meet a guy down the road, you know, a quarterback, and you look into his eyes and you see something, will you, will you give him a chance? And he's kind of setting her up. And then she's kind of confused, saying, uh, sure, I guess so. And then when he leans into Hugger, they added an ADR line. I could tell it was ADR. And he says, um, it's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of. And then she, she looks at him thinking, okay, nice. 
But what happens is at the very end of the movie, when now Warren Beatty is in his, you know, third and final body and all memories are going to be erased, the lights go out in the tunnel of the Coliseum and he's, as he just meets her and he says, it's okay, there's nothing to be afraid of. And when the lights come on, that's the trigger. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, man. Nice moment. Yeah. Oh, it's a lovely movie. That, what a great choice, Pete. And I, I, I think, um, like I said, I just don't feel like a lot of people talk about this one that much, which is surprising yeah. to me. It's such a, it's such a lovely, heartwarming, well done, well made, beautifully acted. Uh, Billy Fraker, uh, I like, like I'm friends with him. William Fraker, the cinematographer, mm-hmm. just classic guy of the time, and these great faces from the, from a, from that year. I mean, Diane Cannon. Charles Grodin, Beatty, of course, who's just amazing to watch, and Julie Christie and everybody else around them. Vincent Gardenia's in there. Yeah. Um, just and, and and I don't think there's anything in there that's cringeworthy for the common sensibility. You know, I don't think I don't feel like there's anything inappropriately um, sexist or misogynistic, other than you know Farnsworth being a jerk, which is okay. Um, I mean, it's like it it holds up in that way too. I feel like yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, okay, here's one thing. I don't. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, this just shocks me about this movie. Uh, apparently, I can't believe this is true. But apparently, Warren Beatty initially wanted Muhammad Ali to play the central character. Whoa! Now, is I that, never heard that. How, have you not heard that? I've never heard that. Uh, because he was still heavily involved in his boxing career at the time. Then Warren changed it from a boxer to an American football player and just decided to play it himself. That would oh, 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 I thought you meant playing as a quarterback. That no, no, no. To me. Oh, because here comes Mr. Jordan was about boxing. Was about boxing. And they were going to try and keep the central story the same. And he apparently was trying to get Ali, which oh, would have that been makes, a... That actually makes sense. But that it would have sense. been a very different movie. And I'm, oh, I don't yeah. think anywhere near... I mean, it's... it's uh, look... For as an actor, uh, Ali was a great boxer. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, um, yes. But man, that would that would have turned things in a very different direction. So oh, yeah. um, I'm kind of gl- glad it ended up doing what it did. Yes. Ah, well, Heaven Can Wait, 1978, Warren Beatty and crew. Uh, just a delightful choice. It is available pretty much everywhere for rent for a you know good four bucks. So it's worth your time if anybody wants to check that out. And, uh, Pete, it's been delightful talking about uh, a movie we both love so much. It's just made me uh, – it's wild away an hour here uh, to keep me from thinking about scary things. So that was worth it right there. Um, everybody keep an eye out for My Spy, which is going to be available for streaming. Did you give a date, Pete, or do we have it set yet? No, they have not um, settled on an exact date yet, but it's going to be in the next few weeks. All right, great. All right. I will make sure to put that link up when it becomes available. As a reminder, also, if you're hearing this on Friday the 17th or Saturday the 18th and you want to get uh, involved in the watch party for Tommy Boy to celebrate the anniversary, uh, celebrate the great Mr. Dennehy, and, of course, uh, the terrific Chris Farley and ask Pete Siegel some embarrassing questions about uh, what kind of underwear he wore in college, if any. Um, you check that out. I'll make the link available on our Snark Monkey uh, info down there if you scroll down. 
And uh, God, we should do this again, depending on how long this frickin' quarantine lasts. Yes, yes this may be a daily series by the time we're done. Uh, hey, dude, uh, I love you. I miss you. And if anything, this was just a great excuse for us to sit and talk about a, mov- a movie that we love. And, oh, it was a joy. And I, too, pal. I, I wish the best for you and your family. And I hope that your daughter is uh, healthy. And would you please knock those heads together over there at that crazy house and tell them what's what? <laughs> you got it. All right. All right, my friend. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.